If we can establish those bonds of ethical and moral and caring and loving framework, then the next stage of the fight will be so much easier. So let me be real clear in describing the problems doesn't mean that we are, we ain't no ways tired. Dr. Lisa Fitzpatrick, founder of Grapevine Health and your host of the Grapevine Health Podcast, a podcast highlighting stories, health insights, and experiences of community members. We started this podcast because too often discussions and decision-making about health and the healthcare system don't include perspectives from the people we serve. So listeners, if you have a personal story or an experience from working in the community or on the front lines of healthcare, Contact us and we might have you on the show. This week, I'm talking to Dr. Reed Tuxen, former health commissioner and founder of the Black Coalition Against COVID. We talked about the coronavirus vaccine, health disparities, and even personal responsibility. Good afternoon, it's Dr. Lisa with Grapevine Health, and I'm so happy to introduce our guest today. We have Dr. Reed Tuxen, who is the former uh, Chief Health Officer for the Washington, D.C. Department of Health. How are you doing, Dr. Tuxen? Well, I'm filled with enthusiasm and, and, and great love for the lives that we can try to save. I noticed um, you've been very active during the pandemic, and we need leaders like you. So tell us what you've been doing. What, you, what have you been up to during the pandemic? Well, you know, we, we started to think, Lisa, and, and, you, and you know this, because thank gosh for your contributions, that we have to understand that communities must be able to take charge of their own health, that, that you can have wonderful governments. And thank God we have such great public health professionals in, in our cities uh, these days. And I'm very, really pleased about that. But government can't do it alone. Communities have to be engaged and empowered. And I have learned over the years, uh, Lisa, that, uh, that, that every community, no matter how challenged, has its share of assets and resources, that we have to look at our communities from the concept of their wholeness, not their deficit. So we did that in Washington, D.C., and created something called the Black Coalition Against COVID, this, this grassroots community effort that identified the influencers, the leaders, the voices that have integrity and believability because of their genuineness, uh, their engagement with community. And we were able to, to capture those people and those voices and have them participate in a, a multi-stakeholder coalition to advance uh, not only the messages around how to stay safe from COVID, but also to be able to try to create ways in which those messages would be incorporated by individuals in the choices they make every day. And so we've been very active in that and very pleased to see that our community-based infrastructure has been crying out for just that kind of engagement. And also, and, and Lisa, I think that this is really what has, I think, been eye-opening for me as well, has been that different sectors of the community are interested in partnering with other sectors of the community. That not everybody looks at the world through their own 
my lens, my agenda, this is what I do. But in fact, they can see a connection to someone else and beginning to think, how can we harmonize our efforts into an organized, coordinated, cohesive, collective whole that makes the sum of the parts more than the individual? And I think that's really, that's a really important point. But what often what's missing is the conductor. So you have all of these stakeholders and all these organizations, they mean well, but sometimes there's a lot of uh, overlap in the things uh, they're doing. So I think you're playing a really important role uh, to conduct the orchestra. Well, if I, if I am, and this is a, something that I am learning, uh, Lisa, is that the one thing for sure is that uh, what we don't need is a bunch of folks with big egos running around trying to create power bases for themselves. That now I'm learning a lot more about a concept that I've always believed in called servant leadership. And that servant leadership starts to be able to have multiple leaders all working together and, and in having each of their skills. You are a servant leader doing just as much. And so being able to find a way for a retuxin to connect with Elisa, to be able to connect with the community-based advocate who is fighting for returning citizens who had been incarcerated and have each of those voices, despite their titles behind their names or what their social status is in society, have each of those voices be equal, working together for the sake of the whole. That has been the really, the thing that animates me the most, Lisa, because it's the way you build for the future. And I think when this is over, you will have a really, well, I guess we all will have a great story to tell because this is a model that desperately needs to be replicated across the country and across sectors, wouldn't you say? I think that is absolutely true. And, 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 I, and I feel that in, it's so powerfully inside of me because I believe that we really do need to think to the future, even as we are fighting this fight. If we can create the relationships and those relationships, Lisa, very much have to do with human caring, being alive enough as humans to care about our fellow person. This COVID epidemic is bringing to light so many side issues, so many big issues are being just illuminated out of the darkness. And one of those issues has to do with our responsibility to our fellow human beings, how I behave affects what happens to you in a way that has never been more dramatic. And so the question becomes, do I love you as much as I'm willing to love myself? Do I care about what happens to you as much as I care what happens to me? If we can establish those bonds of ethical and moral and caring and loving framework, then the next stage of the fight will be so much easier. Yeah, so how do you think we do that? Because this question comes up a lot around the health disparity. So for example, in Washington, D.C., nearly 80% of the deaths are among Black people. And a lot of, a huge proportion of those, we talked to the medical examiner and he told us most of those are people over the age of 60, who, many of whom are staying home, many who, many of whom have chronic health conditions, but maybe it's the people who they're coming in contact with, their loved ones, the younger people, who need the messages um, you're sharing right now. So how do we do that? How do we get those messages out and have them resonate? Well, then now you've, you've taken an already challenging question and you made it even more difficult, but it's real, isn't it? It's real what you just asked. So first of all, let's just acknowledge this is hard. This is not easy work and it takes time. 
Number two, as I've emphasized before, this requires authentic voices, voices with integrity that people will listen to. And oftentimes those voices don't have to have an MD, a PhD, or some government acronym you know, of, of a power center behind their names. Just regular folk are often the most important. Number three, the community and individuals are complex and different. So what works for one segment of the population may not work for another. One of the things that we did uh, as the Black Coalition Against COVID and our team presented was we stopped and did a time for remembrance, lives lost from COVID. And the reason why I emphasize that is listen to the stories of those who have died, the families telling us about their loved one. But the message that comes through, Lisa, and you watch those stories is, wait a minute, this virus is serious and it has consequences. And people that we love are dying. These are not statistics that you can just run across on a page in a newspaper or on an internet site. These are real people that walked among us. And then for our young people, we're gonna to have to have a different message. And I'm beginning to understand now that maybe that message is going to have to increasingly be that um, I, will, I may think I'm invincible, but I do have a relationship to my grandmother and that I have to start thinking about the fact that I care about my mama, I care about my grandma. And these are important, maybe the ways in which we kind of get at this, but each person has their own triggers and we who are making messages are gonna to have to think about a variety of ways of hitting those different triggers. On this topic of health disparity, so having been a health commissioner, this is not a topic that's foreign to you because we've had health disparities for many decades. Uh, but this, this question about COVID health disparities keeps coming up. Why? Why are we seeing this? Even though we've, we've explained, um, or some of the explanations are people have, black people tend to have more uh, or higher rates of chronic health conditions um, or more, less likely to be able to stay at home but I think it's not as simple as that. So I'm just wondering, what is your perspective on why we're seeing these death disparities? Well, I appreciate your sophistication uh, in, in saying that uh, this is a complicated, multifactorial challenge. By the way, simply because something is complex and multifactorial doesn't mean we can't do anything about it or that we're tired. So let me be real clear in describing the problems doesn't mean that we, are, we ain't no ways tired, as we have learned. Let me slow down and, and be very careful on the first point. And I wanna be very careful in how I say this. We have to, in our black community, have a conversation about our own behavior. Let's just realize now, we make a lot of choices that affect our own health. And a lot of times, in fact, too often, we are making choices that don't make sense. They're not appropriate. We have to hold ourselves accountable for our behavior when there is the ability to make a choice, when there is an ability to make a choice, we have to hold ourselves accountable. And we as a community have to hold each other accountable for how we behave inside of our communities. So that's number one. We are making too many inappropriate choices and decisions. Number two, oftentimes we don't have the choices that others do because we don't have the kinds of social environment that makes it easy to do the right thing. We want the right thing to be the easy thing to do. 
But if there isn't a food and uh, supply with fresh fruits and vegetables nearby, it's harder to make the right choice. If we are living congested in neighborhoods with unhealthy environments where the air quality isn't good because of all the pollution from the cars streaming through our neighborhood to get from one place to another, from the suburbs back into the city and back out again, then it makes it harder. So we have a series of social environments, whether it has to do with food security, the quality of our housing, the ability to have recreation. If the police are intimidating our citizens and making it difficult for, uh, for us to go out and jogging uh, without being fearful that the police are gonna stop us for why are we running down the street, that makes it difficult. On the other hand, if we are having violence between our young people and our seniors, making it difficult for our seniors to walk down the street to go to the grocery store, then we got an issue there. So it's complicated in terms of our environment. And then of course it gets down to the quality and availability of access to our medical care. And we know that far too many people of color do not have easy or ready access uh, to healthcare and even fewer to the quality of care that listens to them, that respects them, that takes the time to enforce the dignity of the person and take time to listen to what's going on in their life. We also know that too often the medical care system is disproportionate in terms of the way it interacts from a health treatment point of view with our community. So there are multiple stages in this drama that did not happen overnight. And each one of them has to be dealt with. But I guarantee you, as my final response to this important question, Lisa, at the end of the day, regardless of the challenges, the way in which we will be maximally healthy is when we as individuals take charge of our health and then work together at the level of community infrastructure to support the environment necessary for appropriate individual decision making. Yeah, so I wanna I wanna follow up on a couple of things you said. The first one, and I I respect uh, the the careful way in which you phrased um, the need for people to take responsibility for their health. This is a this is a conversation that happens a lot, and on the other side of the argument, people say when you talk in this way, we're 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 blaming the victim. How do, you, how do you address that? Because I think it's not fair to, to completely dismiss um, the need for, for us to take care of ourselves as victim blaming. Well, what happens is, is that you know, racist uh, people, uh, white supremacist people, uh, agitators and disruptive people, insensitive and stupid people will often put this on us and make it so that we are afraid to have our conversation because they do point the finger and victimize and blame the victim for their own victimization. But some of us do it too, right? And some of us do it too. So that's why it makes it so hard to have the conversation. And then secondly, again, what people uh, who sometimes want to, to, to blame victims for their own victimization uh, are also the very people that are reinforcing the social pathology that makes it impossible to have the social elements necessary for people to be able to make good healthy choices. So that's the challenge. Having gotten that out of the way though, there's something that I was taught years ago by a very smart man in Washington DC named Calvin Rolark, who was the publisher of the black newspaper in, 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 in DC when I was coming up. And what he always used to say is no people but a people can save a people. 
I have fought the health fight in DC, in Philadelphia, in South Central Los Angeles, in Watts. You know, I've been all over this country fighting the fight. And the one thing I have learned is if we're waiting for the white man to come in and save us, we're going to be waiting a long time. So I have no interest in worrying about, you know, somebody else being my savior. We have to save ourselves. And, 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 and the good news, Lisa, is that we know that it can work. We know we've got viable community organizations. Look at the way our churches uh, can function at their best. When we can pull the church community together, it's terrific. The Black Coalition Against COVID, we're pulling together labor, young people, musicians, uh, artists, visual artists, poets, you know, bringing just a whole group of different minded people together. And what we know is, and we're convinced of it, is that by drawing on our strengths, by looking at our community from the context of their wholeness, that we can take care of a whole lot. The second point I want to raise around the notion that when we interact with the health system, a lot of times it's a, it's a negative uh, experience, uh, whether we, we feel that we're being disrespected, um, disbelieved, and so on. So there's a trust issue. And I think the trust between the black community and the healthcare system has been eroded uh, for, for years, for decades. And it's still true. Uh, but I think there's a, a really important uh, topic we need to discuss related to trust in the context of this pandemic. And that is vaccination. Even before this pandemic, I would say 30 to 40% of my patients were either questioning or refusing vaccination. And that's just a flu shot. So now we are looking, as a country, we are looking to vaccination to be the savior. And I, and I, have, I have concerns about that because of the historical distrust, particularly linked to vaccination. Um, but if that's going to be the solution in clinical trials, there, there's lots of data to show that uh, black and brown people are the least likely to be enrolled in clinical trials. So if we're not enrolled in the trials, if we're not, we're not um, engendering the trust needed for these trials, and this is the answer to the pandemic, what are, what are we going to do? Won't this create, um, won't this exacerbate the disparity we're talking about? What are your thoughts about this? Well, first, I just love the way you laid out the question. And then within it are the seeds of so much truth and, and, and so much focus on what we need to do. Let's be really, really clear here that, um, number one, this is, gets back to our behavior. I understand as well as anyone understands about the Tuskegee experience and the Henrietta Lacks uh, uh, issues in Baltimore, Johns Hopkins. I understand those things as historical issues. No question about it. But at the end of the day, we have got to decide to get past that and move on for our own sake. I remember back when I was when I was health commissioner, it was at the height of the HIV epidemic. Every time I'd go on the radio uh, or talk show like this and talk to people about their health and how important it is for a black man to wear a condom uh, when they are having making love to someone outside of a mutually monogamous relationship, the very first question would always be, well, what about Tuskegee? And I would ask the and I'd ask the caller, what does that got to do with you protecting the life of your lady tonight? We got to get over some of this. Now, having said that, 
the people in power in our scientific establishment have got to do a better job as well. There has to be transparency about uh, the, the clinical trials and what the vaccine is doing and so forth and so on. We have to be transparent about the process of how those vaccines are developed, the safety of them, the efficacy in terms of whether they work well or not. And what are the side effects and what are the dangers? We have to be very transparent in the medical community about that. And so I think it's a combination of both. But what you have intimated is, and I can clearly see the scenario that is about to emerge. Number one, many, many black folks will resist participating in the clinical trials to test the vaccine. And then when the vaccine comes out, they'll say, well, how do we know it works for black folks? It wasn't tested in black folks. And then number two, what we're going to say is that I don't want uh, to be uh, to be taking the the vaccine because I think it's going to have a problem, and then we're the ones that are going to then be consigned to the rest of our lives wearing face masks and social distancing, and and then the disparities will get great, and we will be the ones dying, and the white folks will continue to move forward. So we can't have it all. You can't be pissed off and mad and also be able to do and use the therapeutics that are gonna be necessary to not have us uh, have this event. So people like us, you and me, Lisa, we have a responsibility to this community. We have a responsibility to interact intimately with the leadership of America's research community that's developing these vaccines. We have a responsibility to be intimately involved and hold accountable the people that are doing the research we have to be able to say to our people, it is okay to participate in clinical trials because we are watching. You have advocates that are doing that to make sure. And then secondly and lastly, you and I are some of the, with others of our colleagues are going to have to then be able to hold the people who make these products accountable for being transparent about how they work, how well they work, what the dangers are, who should get it, who shouldn't, and so forth, so that our community, which is not people that are dumb or stupid, we can make intelligent decisions if we have the right information. But it's gonna take all that, Lisa, to make this happen. But as you said, and I'll end my answer with this, failure to do this well will exacerbate the disparities at a whole nother level, and that really does scare me. So one of the things I've been doing uh, during the pandemic is going out into the community, just walking around. Sometimes I have on my white coat, sometimes I don't. Uh, but, uh, you know, asking people, what do you think about COVID and this coronavirus pandemic? And do you know the symptoms? So asking a, a lot, lots of different questions. But I ran into a gentleman who told me, he said, you know, this isn't real, right? And I'm not afraid. And I said, well, why, why aren't you concerned? He goes, you know what? Faith and fear don't go together. And I thought about that for a minute, and it, it reminded me of several of my patients and community members who have said to me, God will take care of me. And this is a conversation we don't have enough about this tension for some people between science, faith, and religion. And I, you know, I know you've probably heard these things as well. I'm, I would love to hear your take on this because I think there are people out there like this gentleman who thinks, well, we don't need to take these precautions. We're praying about it. Yeah, uh, so it's a, it is a very common thing. First, I just can't let uh, go by that we in this community are blessed with a physician like you who walks the streets with her white coat and mask on. Now, I just, I'm, I just, you know, I got to applaud my sister. I got to applaud you for that one, because that's what we need. But let's remember one little thing about God. 
God created science too. What that person is really saying is that they are prepared to put their life on the line. And then when they become sick and ill, they are saying, oh, and by the way, I'm expecting another human being who I do not know, who is leaving their family this morning to go work in a hospital to be able then to risk their life to bail you out. That is the most immoral, selfish, unethical decision that I could ever thought about. In other words, I am prepared to go ahead and risk my life, but oh my goodness, when I can't breathe and I've got these secretions that have to be uh, managed and, 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 and all of the risk of transmitting this to another person who has to put on a spacesuit just to go to work every day, I'm expecting that person to suddenly bail me out. You know, come on, that's just not fair. It's not ethical. And there's nothing Christian about that. Wow, thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Tuxton, for being here today. Thank you, Lisa. That was Dr. Reed Tuxen, former DC Health Commissioner and founder of the Black Coalition Against COVID. Thanks for listening to the Grapevine Health Podcast. Our producer is Nicholas Elias. Please like us on social media. You can find us at Grapevine Health on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram, and on Twitter at Health Grapevine. Until next time, I'm Dr. Lisa, signing off.